Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello. Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is Shu Wan. Today, I'm very happy to invite Dr. Liu Yu to join us to talk about his newest book, A History, History of Competitive Gaming. So the first thing I want to do is to invite Dr. Liu to introduce himself to us. Uh, hello, Shu. Uh, it's very... I'm very glad to, to be here and to join your podcast. Uh, so my name is Zhou Xianglu, and I'm an associate professor in the School of Modern Languages, Literatures and Cultures at Maynooth University, Ireland. Yeah, my research interests uh, are the, in, include the history of sport, uh, Chinese history, uh, nationalism, and uh, national identity. Thank you so much for your introduction. So my last question is that I want to know what's the reason you take interest in the promising field of history of video game and esports? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, so there are several reasons. First, um, it's my hobby and my childhood memory of playing all these games, Nintendo and Sega. Um, it's a good memory. Uh, well, second, uh, my background is sports studies, and, and nowadays I focus on uh, the history of sport. Uh, that's my key research area. So I think it's an interesting and timely topic um, uh, from an academic perspective. So before I started the project, actually, um, I um, had a quick um, exploration on the current publications on this uh, topic because game studies is it's quite new compared to other established subject areas. Uh, many of the publications on esports actually focus on um, the business side um, and uh, or some focus on the legal side um, and the social side of um, um, this activity. Um, there are rarely some, um, I mean, in, t- in terms of history of esports, it, it is more or less an overlooked topic, so I decided to try to try to understand the history by myself, and also I think it's a big a, a good opportunity to turn this into into a, a comprehensive 
book to explore the full history of esports from the 1950s to uh, the uh, to recent days. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for your answer again. So nothing. Let's go to your book. So my first question is about your the first chapter of your book. So I want to invite you to talk about the origin, historical origin of video games. Yeah, so、um, it all started in the back in the 1950s when the first generation of modern、uh, mainframe computers began to arise.、Uh, they were de- developed, they were built in、uh, laboratories in、uh, universities in the UK and the US, um, and uh, naturally. Uh, computer scientists they began to use these computers try to figure out what we can do with these great machines.、Uh, so one of the uh, um, uh, possibilities to use these machines to make games.、Uh, so actually,、uh, when you look at the history, Alan Turing,、uh, who is the founding father of AI and modern computer technology, himself he, he got interested in this area. So he he he, he tried to develop a program uh, um, to play chess. So it was designed as an AI program in the beginning to let the computer play chess game against a human component、uh, opponent. So、um, later, Turing's colleagues and other scientists in the UK and America also joined this uh, uh, great invention to produce all various kinds of games.、Uh, but most of the games in this early stage, we're talking about the 1950s, early 1960s.、Uh, most of them they are table games like chess and TikTok and all these basic、uh, games.、Uh, and then from the、um, 1960s onwards, late 1960s, early、uh, 1970s, with the development of the technology, then they ha- they are、uh, now by the late 1960s and early 1970s, they began to use CRT uh, uh, screens. And to show what's going on, right? In the past, it's only a typewriter. You type, the typewriter will give you the results of the calculation, and then with all the screen, CRT screen, they can display various、uh, images and on visuals videos. So scientists they also used these mainframe machine to create the so-called real video games with video,、right? and and the, some of the early games, for example, this, they are more or less like simulators. They simulate. A Beatles game, like you you play that in the pub, right? And also some scientists they created tennis, tennis for two. That's the name created in 1971. So it was designed as a game between two players, and they use a a controller and to to control the bat and then hit the ball. So that's the the beginning of all these video games. We can see that. Um, in the very beginning, many of the games actually they were designed and、uh, they simulated sports, either table、uh, games, mind sports we call that, right? And and um, another kind is real sport, um, um,、uh, either recreational sport or competitive sport like、uh, tennis. So entering the nineteen、uh, seventies、um, with the development of technology again,、um, computers we we now have. Much smaller computers. So instead of in the laboratory, laboratories,、uh, it's the mainframe, huge computers, huge machines. Now computers become smaller and smaller, and more power efficient, and, and faster, and, and more capable of running various programs. So students in universities in the U.S. 
uh, especially in uh, in the uh, computer science uh, areas, and also researchers in the U.S. and uh, they began to use this modern, uh, not modern computer, but the second generation or third generation computers to create more games. So we have a various uh, a, a, a diverse genre of games or diverse range of games were produced in this period, uh, including sports games, shooting games, RPG games, we're talking about role-play games and strategy games. Uh, and naturally, people began to use these games to organize competitions. So the games they choose uh, at first is a, a game called, um, um, it's a space war shooting game. So the idea is that let's play this game uh, there are spaceship inside that each player controls a spaceship to see who can destroy each other first. And then that's the idea. And then um, in 1972, I think that's the first ever competitive gaming event was held um, in Stanford University's AI laboratory uh, with around 20 students and researchers participated in that event. So I would say that's the, the beginning of what we're talking about today, the eSports the e or competitive game. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for your for I mean for your reviewing of the early history of video game and its emerge as I mean its evolution um, in a, in a Sorry, in 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 the, in the interaction with the development of table game. So now let's talk about after talk about the early history of video game in a general sense. Let's talk about uh, the rise of competitive gaming when the power of Atari phenomenon, Pac-Man favor, and the Nintendo creates rapid world in the nineteen eighties. Uh, yeah. So so after this early inventions. Um... I mean, games from laboratories, right, by students and scientists. Then by the second half of the 1970s, commercial video games began to rise. Uh, we're talking about uh, Pong, for example. We're talking about uh, Atari. We're talking about uh, other companies um, that produced these early games. Uh, Ping Pong is one of the pioneers, um, and, and that's even before Atari. Uh, and that game was designed as a kind of you use a, a TV to play the game and it's you don't need a, a computer actually uh, you use a simple console to control the images on the tv so two players one each of the player control a, a patch a ping pong patch then, then there's a bouncing ball between in between and then uh, the two uh, players can compete and then atari based on this this idea produced uh, the famous pong and then other companies also joined this campaign to produce various commercial games, uh, expanded from Pong variants uh, to all other kinds of shooting games and strategy games. So by the late 1970s, or actually from the mid 1970s, major companies, game companies, especially uh, arcade, uh, video arcade companies, they began to use a competition to attract players. For example, in 1974, uh, one of the first commercial video game event was organized by Sega uh, in Japan. Uh, and, and they invited players across Japan to join and to play to see who can uh, get the highest score. And so at that time in the 1970s uh, in, or in the early 1980s, it's um, the competition is all about how uh, to see who can win the highest score by tempting uh, a high score on a particular game. It can be any game, can be a puzzle game, 
can be a platform game, uh, can be a shooting game like Space Invader, one of the most famous uh, game at that time, and, and can be Donkey Kong as well. Donkey Kong is a platform game produced in the early 1980s. So, um, so we can see the market started to take shape. A video game market, at that time it was called the golden age of video games by the 90, early 1980s. We have Europe and we have Japan and we have America. So if you look at the landscape, most of the big companies, they're either American companies or Japanese companies. In Japan, we have Nintendo, Sega, Taito, and in America, we have Atari and Midway and all these big names. Uh, so what they did is that these companies, they began to host competitions on various games. Uh, it's very clear. The purpose is to attract players. So more players can play their games um, It's for, 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 for promotion purposes. And then uh, they would normally give small gifts to winners at the time. It's only a T-shirt or a token or some some small uh, souvenirs. It's different from today's esports event. You're talking about million, millions of dollars for, for winners. At that time, it was um, uh, very, very uh, different, right? Uh, yeah, so so that's the uh, early development in the by the early 1980s, uh, before the, uh, the great video game crash of 1983, yeah, the early commercial uh, games and uh, uh, game competitions. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So after talking about interwoven history of a commercial video game and competitive gaming in the 1970s and the 1980s, now let's switch to the question of the reconstruction of video game industry in the context of widespread arrival of PC and internet along with the formation of some popular esports genres. Uh, yeah, then after the crash uh, of 1983, actually the North American um, home video game and arcade game uh, sector um, saw a, a, a decline. And at the same time, uh, companies from Japan, especially Nintendo uh, and uh, Sega, uh, they continued to invest um, in video game industry and they began to produce uh, those big names consoles for example uh, Nintendo NES and uh, Sega Master System Sega Genesis and uh, then in turn in the early 90s Nintendo produced this, the Super Nintendo and Sony also joined the, the competition so we see uh, many many Japanese made consoles and games flooded into Europe into into, into America. And also America uh, gaming industry also began to uh, recover by the uh, in the second half of the 1980s. Um, now the gaming industry, we need to look at the structure. Uh, it's a three pillar industry. Uh, you have first, you have home game consoles like Nintendo NES, right? And Sega Master System. Uh, and the, then you have the home computer sector. And then the third sector uh, is the video arcade market. Uh, so we go into those arcades, those shopping centers, or these uh, uh, entertainment centers to to insert a coin and then try to play the game. Uh, the, the three um, uh, sectors uh, supported each other and forming a, a huge industry by the early 1990s. So what happened is that uh, in the early 1990s, we see... Esports or competitive gaming developed into different directions. 
especially with the rise of fighting games. Uh, we are talking about in 1991, uh, Capcom produced uh, released Street Fighter Two, right? Uh, so the difference between these fighting games and the first generation or the early commercial games is that they pit players against each other. So when when we talk about uh, Donkey Kong, uh, the 1980s big names there, or Space Invader, right? Uh, all these games, it's you you, you play by yourself. Right. You, ch- uh, you try to attempt high score, and then the system will record the score and show you there, there's even a kind of a, a list of high score players. And uh, the motivation comes from this, this uh, uh, I want to be, be the best of the best. So if I can achieve the top score, score then I can put my name on the system. So uh, other players, they can see it. So number one, number two, number three, we all have our, we can put our own names there, initials there, and followed with the score. That's a, the big motivation. And in terms of uh, competitive gaming events or game tournaments, it's all based on that concept. You achieve high score, then you are the best in Japan. How much score you achieved in a particular game can be any game, right? And in the US, and the, we have the three top players, and then uh, we invite all these players together to see who is the international champion. So it's, it's more or less like a modern Olympic Games from local level to regional level and to national level and to international level. Uh, and in 1990, Nintendo then organized a, a major uh, competitive gaming event, um, the Nintendo World Championship. So that's how they organize the event. They invite players from all over the world, try to attempt high scores, play uh, NES games uh, uh, like Super Mario, Tetris, and all these, uh, and Contra, all these uh, famous titles. And then uh, they had they organized uh, regional or state competitions uh, across America. And then finally, um, um, a, a, a grand final to see who is the best player. So that's the traditional way for competitive gaming. Started from the 1980s all the way to the uh, 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 1990s. And then come back to the fighter uh, fighting games um, started in the arcade, like Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat, um, by, uh, created, uh, produced by Midway. Um, these fighting games were played, normally played between two players uh, uh, locally in these local arcades. Uh, and the, the idea is that uh, there are two or three rounds of games. And if you win, right, and, and you, you, can, you can see your opponent in front of you. It's not to achieve a high score, but it's like you, you beat him up in the game. You win that particular game against a real human uh, opponent. So that totally changed how uh, gaming competitions were organized. Or, or, or played. It's no longer attempt high scores. So local operators, arcades, or, or, or Capcom, the companies, the when they organize fighting game events, it's more or less like you organize a tennis event uh, or a real sporting events. So you, 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 you invite, say, 30 players. So these 30 players will play each other, and then only 15 of them survive into the next round. And then the semifinals, six players. Then the finals uh, 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 between two players. Uh, so that makes the competition very, very intense and uh, uh, highly attractive, especially for audience. I'm Alex Rodriguez. 
And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So you think about the high scores. Yes, it's interesting, but you see the player play against the computer and sometimes you get bored, right? But for fighting games, it's so diverse. You can use, you can invent so many different skills in Street Fighter uh, um, uh, series games. And, and uh, you, you see the real emotion of the two competitors and when they lose the game or when they win a point, and you can see that, that's a game changer. Then moving to the computer game sector, and we the, the personal computers began to rise. So the major difference um, for esports or for this competitive gaming uh, area is that now gamers they can connect two or more computer PCs. We call that computers together. Either use a modem to at that time and there's no broadband, so they used modem uh, use a cable to uh, to either use a cable to connect uh, two or more computers or you dial into the uh, telephone network and then use that to connect to a distance uh, computer uh, then in 1993 uh, we have doom right the the great FPS game. That game became one of the first uh, computer PC computer FPS titles to support this multiplayer uh, uh, mode. It means two or more players can join a network and uh, compete against each other. Again, um, the important thing I want to mention here is that it's similar to the fighting games. It's they pitch players against players instead of against the AI to compete for high school. But what made Doom unique is that it's not only between two players. Now, it can be four players. And then later versions uh, or or other similar games like Quake and other FPS games, they pitch four or more, even 16 or 32. Uh, And then by the late 1990s, we had Counter-Strike. Right. That's a, most of the gamers would know that title and have that memory of competing against uh, 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 it's two teams competing against each other. And then in addition to that, we had uh, real-time strategy games like uh, uh, Warcraft uh, and then Red Alert, uh, Command and Conquer, and then Red Alert. And uh, in 1998, we had uh, StarCraft. So all these games, strategy games, is also based on the similar concept. They pit players against each other, between uh, sometimes between two players, and also up to eight players can compete on the same map instantly at the same time. So with the development of the internet uh, by the late 1990s, you mean, we see the, the, the horizon expanding. In the past, in the early 1990s, when we talk about Doom or... Uh, or command and conquer. It's only between normally between two players, right? Locally, 
um, uh, um, uh, and and all use a cable. You use telephone network to dial into another computer and you compete. So by the late 1990s, we're talking about uh, LAN parties. We're talking about local uh, area connection games. And you go into the uh, a certain location. You see multiple pieces linked uh, to each other. And then a, a big group, a big crowd actually join the competition. And, and, and then it's the internet is changing everything. So it's no longer uh, confined to a physical location. So you sit at home and then you can connect to, for example, two or three or even more players in the same game to compete at the same time. So that, that was a game changer. I mean, technology changed everything. Um, uh, also changed the way games were used for competition. Uh, so now okay. we thank have... you so much for your discussion yeah. about how the technological, infrastructural, and the cultural change influenced the evolution of video game and the configuration of competitive gaming. So after that, let's go to the new millennium. So for next question, I want to invite you to talk about uh, the formation of modern esports industry and the rise of non-profit in esports organization and the governing bodies in the early 20th century or 21st century i mean yeah uh, so esports this term actually started to be used uh, since since the late 1990s uh, and then moving into the early 2000s uh, we see this rapid development of the esports so-called esports industry uh, and especially surrounding several games, uh, StarCraft is one, and then Counter-Strike, right? And uh, 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 Warcraft, uh, that's the, an, another game. Um, and many of the events were actually organized by uh, the game publishers, like Blizzard uh, and, uh, and, and other major game companies like EA. EA, uh, they make sports games, right? And they, they organized uh, FIFA. Uh, and uh, uh, NBA basketball games, um, and also Japanese game companies like Sega and Nintendo, all these, and Sony, they also continue to organize similar events. We have we see more investment uh, in this area. Uh, I think the reason is very simple, because there are more players, and more players are interested in this newly rising uh, um, uh, way of play and way of competition, players against players, this kind of competition. So companies began to invest uh, into this area. And at the same time, we saw the rise of um, uh, um, uh, esports governing bodies, uh, organizations, either at regional, local, regional, or international levels. Uh, they also began to organize major gaming events uh, with the sponsorship uh, from uh, game companies. Um, it started at small level, regional level, and then expanded into into a big scale um, uh, events that involve uh, thousands of people at a time. And the the big name at the time was WCG uh, in Korea, right? WCG Games um, annually held in in Korea. Uh, that initiative actually was uh, supported by the Korean government by Samsung and by the major industry players there. And the purpose is to use these com competitive gaming events to boost the IT industry to get more people play and to participate and um, to promote the, the computer industry. Um, yeah, and at the same time, we see the rise of non-profit uh, organizations. So these organizations actually were, most of them, they were created by gamers themselves. 
uh, not for profit when they organize an event is for charity and uh, so it's a it's different even you look at the games they used uh, and they use old games from the 1990s or, or the 1980s the nes or, or sega genesis at uh, times the 2d games which and and, and they still play high uh, uh, high score games to attempt high score or some of them they try to attempt to, to finish a game and to see in the shortest period of time, in two hours or three hours. Normally, a game would take us 10 hours, but they try to figure out a way to finish it in one hour to see, to create a new world world, world record. But all these are kind of uh, for non-profit purposes. Uh, it's a hobby. It's nostalgia. You get the feeling, right? Uh, so it became very diverse, even within this esports uh, area, or esports industry it developed into different directions. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So after talking about, I want to say, the emergence and the evolution of, of competitive gaming and esports in the extended period. So now let's talk about the current situation of esports. So I want to invite you to discuss the obstacles and the challenging facing esports now. Yeah, okay. So we've covered the, briefly covered the history and um, I think the last chapter of my book uh, focuses on these challenges for future development and the obstacles and, and, and the, the industry is face, facing at the moment. Um, uh, I have several points. The first point is uh, sustainability issues. Um, uh, because if we look at the industry itself, um, when we talk about players, normally we compare it with traditional sports like soccer and basketball. And, uh, and track and fields, swimming, all these uh, games. Um, in esports, which we call pro players, professional players, right? Uh, they are very young. Uh, they are normally between um, the age of 18 or 22. And by the age of 22, 23, you see many players would retire. It's a, it's a, it's a game, it's a competition for, for young generation. Um, so this raises a question for the suspended sustainability of, of the, the industry. Also, if you look at the industry as a pyramid-like industry, yes, we have professional players, we have semi-professional players, then we have amateur players. If you look at the pyramid, um, it's a perfect-shaped pyramid. Um, how many people can get into the top to become professional players? And among these professional player circle, how many can earn money? can earn big prizes like one or two million or even 10 million super big prizes. That's only a few every year, not so many. Uh, but people really look at the bottom of the pyramid or the, the middle of the pyramid to see how many semi-professional players or uh, prof professional players uh, in this pyramid and, and uh, what's the future for them and how about their life. There are many, many uh, reports and uh, real stories about players, professional players around the world. Actually, uh, they, they receive a very low wage, uh, uh, wage and um, um, the salary is not good. Uh, and also it's not sustainable for them. And, and sometimes the company pay them very little amount of money and only lasted for uh, two less than two years, one or two years, a short period of contract. And if they can't get into the top level, if they can't win prizes at international events, then where's the future? 
So that's my concern. And another thing is uh, the IP issue and antitrust issues. And nowadays, we see most of the events uh, they were organized by game publishers, uh, copyright holders of this game. Uh, again, we compare esports with traditional sports. Uh, who owns the copyright? In traditional sports, anyone can organize a basketball or tennis or swimming competition at any level. And nobody is going to charge you for copyright. Is it? But for esports, no, the platform used for competition is game produced by companies. These companies own the copyright. So you have has to you have to get permission from the game companies. It's okay for local level. Say I have some a couple of friends, 10 or 20 friends, we organize the event. The game companies won't bother that, but when it becomes big, say I want to organize a national competition and then uh, investment is involved. Uh, commercial uh, uh, advert advertisement is involved, and then uh, game companies may ask, "Yeah, that's that's their intellectual property. You need to pay a certain amount of money to to be able to use the game." And uh, sometimes it's the publishers decide whether to go ahead with these events or not. There are several uh, examples. I'm not going to talk here because uh, the time limit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, integrity issues, we talk about um, um, uh, cheating and gambling uh, and and uh, drug issues, uh, right? Um, uh, like in traditional sports, um, esports players um, are facing similar situations uh, with performance-enhancing drugs, for example, and uh, cheating during competitions. And some players kind of, uh, they were bribed by uh, uh, gambling companies and to intend uh, to lose in certain games and to make profit. So these are all the problems we're facing, similar to uh, modern games. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for your answer, and, and I really appreciate your talk today about your fantastic book. So at the end of our episode today, I want to talk to my audience. So for my audience, I want to say for my listeners, if you, if any of you take any interest in the history of video game, in the in the promising field of game studies, and even you just uh, quote um quote nerd quote uh, uh, fans of esports of video game, I highly recommend you take consider buying a copy of Doctor Liu's fantastic book, History of Competitive Game, which is one of the best book about this topic. So thank you so much for listening our talk today. Thank you. Bye-bye.